Did you know that while trade openness can increase the risk of low-intensity conflicts, it also decreases the risk of high-intensity conflicts? This and more today on Trade for Peace. Welcome to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. I am Axel Addy, former chief negotiator of Liberia's accession to the WTO and founding member of the Trade for Peace program. Trade for Peace is a 30-minute podcast in conversation with Trade for Peace champions, the global policymakers, entrepreneurs, and innovators committed to promoting trade as a key ingredient for lasting peace. Join us in our bi-monthly podcast as we discuss how trade is contributing to sustainable peace in fragile and conflict-affected countries. Welcome to Trade for Peace. The opinions and statements expressed in the Trade for Peace podcast are entirely and solely those of the guests and the host. The WTO Secretariat takes no institutional positions on matters of policy, or of the WTO membership. In our last episode, we looked at what history teaches us. What does the data say today? I have the honor to welcome three distinguished economists to discuss their paper, Make Trade, Not War, which analyzes data from 1950 to 2000 and provides insights on how trade can affect the probability of conflict between countries. In our discussion today, we are joined by two professors of economics from Sciences Po Paris, Philippe Matin and Thierry Maillet, and one professor of economics from HEC Lausanne, Matthias Tunick. Matthias, Thierry, and Philippe, welcome to Trade for Peace. Thank you. Thanks, thanks a lot for the invitation. We are delighted to be here. Thank you. Now, I would like us to dive right into our discussion. We have a quite a heavy topic today. And so in your paper, you talked about estimating the effect of trade on the probability of conflict. And I believe this is quite a timely discussion, given our current reality. Thierry, I would like to start with you. In layman's terms, why is it so difficult? When we started this project, it was obviously a very ambitious question with day-to-day implications like we felt was sort of broader than what economists used to deal with. And so we, we wanted to be sort of have something that would be general enough that it would still be policy relevant, but that would be specific enough that as economists, we could actually implement it. And so we we needed to be modest enough on two grounds in order to tackle the challenge. The first is conceptual or theoretical framework. We wanted to have a a framework that would not explain all wars, but would explain something that is the escalation to war. There are plenty of reasons for countries to have sources of conflicts, military conflicts and disagreements. And what the economic tools in theory provide us with is something that we can we can assess is when does a source of conflict escalate into actual war okay that's what the theory can actually inform us rather than all the potential sources of conflict so the first thing was tackle the challenge of 
economy's view of rational agents, because that's what we, we, we used to work with, okay, rational governments, why would they not settle on an agreement when a conflict arises? And, and, and how does, do we escalate into something that is a full-blown war? And so starting about this, you know, starting from economist background, we, we came up with the, with the idea and, and looking at the literature that it had to be about information failures, okay? So, so rush, as we see today, rational governments, given the huge cost of wars on, on all grounds, and economics is only one, of course, of the, of the potential damages, should never go at war, should never escalate, should always find a way. So if they don't, it's because they essentially misjudge each other. They try to negotiate and they don't really have the full information or they misinterpret the information that they have about the others, such that they they make too big a claim, and in the end, the failure occurs in that they you don't bargain. So that was the first challenge, to set up a theory that would be grasping those, those mechanisms. And the second challenge where we put ourselves is to actually get data to see whether our theory would be validated with the um, data in the real world. And the challenges here are, are vast also. So, of course, if you think about bilateral trade and bilateral conflicts, many of the determinants that uh, you can think about in terms of escalation would be common. So, for instance, wars are very local in in the data. There's a short distance between countries that share a political frontier, and that also increases trade. So there's plenty of reasons why a country would both be more prone to war escalation and be more you know, I- intensively trading. So that's the first problem of confounding factors, as economists say, in the, in the empirical challenge. And, and the second and related one is reverse causality, of course. We want to explain why trade might reduce or, or not wars. But of course, when a war occurs, as we see today, the trade is, is affected. And so how to tease out the causal, the causal link is what economists are sort of good at, trying to think about causality in a, in a very deep way, was the main challenge on the empirical, on the empirical side, uh, two challenges. And over to you, Matthias. Yeah, in the title of our paper, you, you forgot something, actually. We said, make trade not war, but there was a question mark at the end. And indeed, the question mark is, in, is important because... What we found in this paper from both a theory and empirical point of view was that the relation between trade and war is, is relatively ambiguous. If we come back to you know, the, the old thinking of philosophers like Kant, Montesquieu, about in French we say du commerce, the idea of trade using the, the probability of war was in some sense relatively simple, more interactions between countries into more peaceful relations. In a sense, what we're trying to do is to put an economic interpretation to this thinking of, of, of old philosophers. And the interpretation we give is that war has an opportunity cost. There's a cost of war. In fact, what we find is that on average, in the post-World War II period, when you have a war between two countries, it destroys 
by around 25 to 35% trade relations. And it's long-lasting, meaning, you know, it's even after the, the end of the war, this fall in bilateral trade is, is long-lasting. It takes 15, 20 years to come back to, to normal in bilateral trade relations. So war has a cost in terms of trade because it destroys trade and therefore it destroys GDP and then economic resources, etc. And in a sense, here, the, the, the bilateral view of trade reducing uh, the probability of war is relatively simple to understand. Axel, if I trade more with you, and if at some point we have a dispute, we both have a strong interest to find a way not to escalate this into war, because if we were, we would be destroying a lot of, of trade, and this would be super costly for both of us. So we're going to try to find a way to make a compromise and not to escalate into war. So what we were finding, this simple intuition that bilateral trade is indeed reducing the probability of bilateral war, we were finding it very strongly in the data. Uh, so from that point of view, you know, the trade is, uh, is increasing. This is, is true. Now, where the question mark was coming from was that if you take not a bilateral view of trade, but also a multilateral point of view, and I'm going to be sorry because I'm going to pick up on Thierry and Matthias on this, is that if now I'm trading more with Matthias and with Thierry and with other countries, relatively, I'm going to be less dependent in our relationship, in our bilateral relationship. And we know globalization is a mix of more bilateral trade and more multilateral trade. So that's where the ambiguity is coming from in the sense that when I open to trade with many other countries, multilateral trade, what in some sense the WTO is promoting, huh? more multilateral trade. So if I trade with many other countries, if I trade more with many other countries, with Matthias and Thierry, then the probability that I have a conflict with you actually increases because then the opportunity cost of a bilateral war with you actually decreases. I have possible other trade partners than you. I can substitute my trade relation with other partners. And so from that point of view, actually, trade may not use, but actually increase the probability of especially a local conflict with countries which are close to each other. Because when we have globalization, typically it means trading with far away, more far away countries. And that actually reduces, in some sense, the opportunity cost of a war at a very local level. And over to you, Matthias. Looking at the data, can you apply your model to countries that have gone through this process where you've seen their bilateral relationship versus their multilateral relationships affecting trade and a decision making in terms of whether to participate or not participate in conflicts? Yeah, I, I can provide you with some examples, but maybe let me first answer maybe to your first question. I'm not sure we, we, we are very you know, exhaustive about why it's so difficult to find the data because our relationship between trade and war. The main reason is that, you know, we, we aim at quantifying the effects, you, you know, using statistical methods. And it turns out that although they have a devastating cost, those wars, you know, are quite, from a statistical perspective, rare events, you know. So it's quite challenging to conduct a sound uh, statistical analysis, you know, of this relationship between trade and, and conflicts. This said, we, we made progress in, in addressing the question by, you know, using those very large data sets, you know, that have been built 
by quantitative political scientists and historians, uh, where they can document, you know, at the world level, the full history of conflicts, either between countries, you know, since the early 19th century, or conflicts within countries, you know, civil wars. And so, so thanks to the availability in the past 20 years of those huge data sets, we can conduct statistical analysis of, of the trade and war question. You know, this said, as Thierry was mentioning, it's, it's really inferring causation, you know, from trade to war is difficult because you have many omitted variables. You know, that's a point made by Thierry, which is, you know, neighboring countries such as Ukraine and Russia have many reasons to trade, but also to, to engage into a conflict and dispute. So the overall, you know, my overall assessment is that it's a very old question in political philosophy, trade and war relationship. However, we are equipped with modern quantitative tools only since recently. So there are many, many open questions, you know, related to the trade and war relationship. And so it's quite hard, hard to formulate evidence-based recommendations for policymakers. So it, it really commands prudence and humility in our advices. Okay, now I, I can give you some numbers, right? Because we, in, in our study, we, we came up with what are called, what, what is called counterfactual policy interventions, where we use our statistical model to predict the what if, uh, for example, Turkey would become a, mem a full member of uh, the European Union, right? So we conducted such a quantitative uh, counterfactual analysis. And so, Think about it. If Turkey becomes a full member of EU, then its trade, the trade of Turkey with Greece, would increase by a lot, you know, simply because non-trade barriers would decrease and also uh, trade barriers. And so, non-tariff barriers, sorry. So, what we find is that in the case of a full membership of Turkey, then because of this increase in bilateral trade with Greece, the latent conflict risk between the two countries, so between Turkey and Greece, would be reduced by 75 percentage point. Okay, so that, that's a lot. It's a, it's a factor of four, actually. Because as you know, those two countries are neighbors and have a long history of, of, of bilateral disputes, not necessarily fully-fledged war, but disputes, you know. And so clearly, in the case of, of the Greece-Turkey uh, pair of countries, full membership to EU would, would pacify the relationship between the two countries. We, now, this is for bilateral trade. As Philip was mentioning, multilateral trade openness has actually a, a, an opposite effect because multilateral trade openness decreases local dependencies between countries. And so by decreasing those regional dependencies, then that can backlash and, and actually increase the risk of, of conflict. And so we can conduct a similar counterfactual experiment where we artificially reduce or put the level of multilateral trade observed in the 2000, we can put it back to its 1970 level, right, before the uh, actual uh, wave of globalization. Okay, so that would be a, a measure setback of multilateral trade openness. But if you do that, our quantitative estimates show that actually the risk of interstate wars between neighboring countries, such as Turkey and Greece or Russia and Ukraine, would overall be reduced by one third. Okay, so reverting the trend of multilateralism back to the 1970 level 
would actually decrease the latent conflict risk in the world. Thank you, Matthias. And, and over to you, Thierry. I was just thinking, did your study take into account the size and structure of the economy, the commodities being traded? For example, I mean, this, this podcast focuses on fragile and conflict-affected uh, states. Oftentimes, they are commodity, heavily driven by commodities, exporting commodities, and heavily dependent on imports from all over the world. And so the argument you make that greater trade across borders is going to help to facilitate at least a certain level of peace and cooperation. What about in situations where the reliance on critical commodities is not dependent on what my neighbor has, but dependent on what the market, the global market has? That's a very good question. So let me provide a two-step answer. So first, the methodological tool we use a lot in our theory and empirics is the gravity equation in trade. And the gravity equation in trade works, broadly speaking, it works for global trade. So trade in the, you know, in, independently of which of the goods are, are trade, if we sum those dollars of commodities traded and, and manufactured goods, etc., it, it works very well. But it works also at the sectoral product level. Okay, so it's it's a very good description of how between two countries like tariffs or non-tariff barriers or distance or historical heritage between two countries like a common language, etc. It's a very good description, even at the sector level. Okay, so 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 the first thing is that the fundamental force that drives trade and impacts the incentives to be peaceful or, on the contrary, to avoid war, are not really affected in a, in a qualitative sense. Mm-hmm. It works also at the sectoral level. That being said, you're absolutely right that one of the things that we didn't pursue in our analysis was differentiate what interdependencies, bilateral interdependencies and multilateral interdependency means depending on the goods. And, and that's something that I think would be important to, to follow up. And I would say there are maybe two critical dimensions that were absent for our initial picture is what you said about critical goods in the sense that there's two things. First, in, in, it can be critical in the sense that you absolutely need that good, that commodity, and it could be a manufactured good, right? Those microprocessors that you need, those chips, are, and you need them to power everything in, in your economy. That make your bargaining power in, in the thing I was in, in the bargaining I was talking about the very first thing. Uh, of course, different depending on whether you are the producer or the buyer of those things. And we didn't take this into account. It doesn't change the qualitative nature of the game, but it probably changes the weights and the perception of the two opponents in the way they can win the negotiation or lose the negotiation. So that's the first thing. A more, I think, deep and qualitatively different thing that we didn't have in our initial paper, and I think there's really interesting work, is global value chains. You can be critical in a way that is way more subtle than just selling oil and people need oil. You can be critical, it's because you're going to affect things in complicated ways, both through the input-output structure inside a country and because this input-output structure is now globalized. Yes. And so it's not only bilateral or multilateral, it's 
Third country effects are, are way more complex. And, and that changes a little bit. It needs like an amendment of the theoretical things we were, we're using in the index. A trade for peace program aims to sort of help countries, particularly a fragile and conflict affected countries that are in the process of joining the WTO. The assumption that greater trade, greater uh, transparency in, in trade, removing non-tariff barriers, by integrating countries like my country, Liberia, into the global economy. Over time, it improves economic outcome for citizens and uh, people are less likely to go to the bushes and are more likely to go to the come to the diplomatic table to negotiate a peace. But your model seems to look at more structured economy. I mean, I guess one of the challenges when you talk about the data will be sort of collecting data, especially from small, particularly least developed countries where data access is quite a challenge. But your paper is a groundbreaking paper because it's investigating the two side effect of trade. And I'm quite happy that you guys have agreed to to be on this podcast to talk about this because it's a constant discussion as to whether trade may facilitate conflict or may foster lasting peace. And so, Philippe, over to you. I would like you to talk a little bit about some of the key findings in your study that you feel will be relevant in looking at today's context. Well, so if we're thinking about today's context compared to the study we've done in 2008 that was using data until 2000, I feel there are several things that may have changed. First, terrorism is part of a conflict and these are non-state actors. And that certainly complicates quite a bit the way we think about trade and war. The second issue is sanctions. Sanctions have become very important. Or another way to say it is that trade has become, has been weaponized in a sense. We are seeing this right now, also in the case of the war in Ukraine, where clearly the bilateral dependence of some European countries vis-a-vis Russia was clearly uh, constructed and accepted constructed the part of uh, Russia and accepted on the part of certain European countries. And this has an impact, actually, in the sense that if you think about this trade dependence, yes, maybe potentially the fact that some European countries and Europe as a whole is quite dependent on Russian energy exports means that potentially we have a less aggressive response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And then I would stop here. I don't have any, you know, whether it's good or not, we can differ on that. But in a sense, we have to admit that the fact that the opportunity cost of having a much more aggressive stance vis-a-vis Russia means that we don't want to have this aggressive position. So some would say it's disastrous. And some would say, well, it's peaceful. It's not obvious to me, but clearly, self-dependence is important. Another point, which I think is important, especially in the context of the war in Ukraine, is that what we had found on the post-World War II period is that I said before that around you know, 25 to 35% of bilateral trade is destroyed during a bilateral war. But we were finding that actually multilateral trade was not that much affected, meaning that, you know, if two countries in Africa were having a bilateral war, 
Yes, their bilateral trade was reduced very much, but the trade of these two countries with the rest of the world was not that much affected on average. Of course, you could always find some, some countries where, where multilateral trade would have been very much affected, but on average, we were not fine. Clearly, clearly, sanctions can change all this in the case of the war in Ukraine, in the sense that we've seen that, for example, Russian trade has gone down quite a lot if not in, in value for certain exports, but at least in, in volumes, clearly it has. And both exports and imports. So sanctions actually change quite a bit, maybe the, the dynamics between war and trade, because what that means is that now, especially in this particular conflict, the, the trade between one of the two actors of the, the, the conflict, the, the, the country that actually started the war, Russia, sees its trade very much affected and one can expect that actually it's going to be, if not permanent, very persistent fall in multilateral trade, which clearly is going to have a huge economic impact on Russia. And it's, and it's not only the exports of Russia to the rest of the world, it's actually very much the imports. That's where we see that actually trade is very important economically, that actually it's not only exports that matter. It's very much the imports also that matter for innovation, for global value chains we were talking about, etc. So that's the way I would I would frame the, the present context in, in the way that indeed uh, I think we have an issue, and I guess it's important for WTO, that trade is becoming weaponized. Maybe states have learned the lesson that indeed trade is super important in bilateral political relations. I mean, in some sense, they knew it all, all over, but clearly in the past 20 years, I think this has become even more important. And over to you, Atir. Within the multilateral trading system, there's seem to be more and more discussions at the plurilateral level, forcing countries to consolidate those interests into regional agreements, mm-hmm. in some cases to protect themselves from what might be perceived threats. How does this dimension add to countries' dependencies in terms of multilateral trade? And how does this help to protect or facilitate conflict? So that that was one of the, I think, the lessons you could learn from our initial framework that we proposed, which is this initial paper, but not only, also follow-up papers. We were interested in, in how regional integration w- would actually enter the the, the picture. And clearly what Philippe and Matthias talked about is this multilateral openness, raising the propensity of going at war between two countries. When you understand that, you realize that actually you can have a counteracting effect in terms of peaceful relationship if those two countries actually are within an RTA. And that's something that is very strong empirically, is that being inside a regional agreement reduces the propensity to go at war in a very drastic way and for plenty of reasons, but one of which in our framework is that it changes the geography of international trading. And you can think maybe maybe even more for poor countries like you were, you were describing earlier is that maybe the original multilateral system, which was all about multilateral liberalization and viewed regional integration as an exception, Article 24, right? Which is like an exception to the rule. 
maybe our framework could say those two things need to go together because if you open up to the rest of the world, you, by definition, are less dependent on your neighbor. And that's your neighbor that is usually your opponent in a military conflict. So you want to do maybe two things at once in order to avoid this, this, this type of conflict. So that, that's something that was pretty new in our framework. Now, to come back to your question that is more about the current context, I think it's relevant also. It's like those, those in a sense, what we hear nowadays is, is maybe a little bit like a call for a comeback to regional agreements, like or, or you could call it plurilateral, but sort of a friendly agreements among countries that have very little to fight about and that could serve as an insurance. If you deepen your relationship with the countries with which you're already friends, for sure, this is not going to go in the direction of being more peaceful with your enemies, right? That's that's a very, in our framework, it, it's very clear. But it is an insurance mechanism in case you got war with your enemies. So in a sense, I, I, I view those things like, remember, there was a Comic-Con at some point. And, the, and there was like, a, and that was also re, regional integration in terms of trade that was viewed as a fortress against the rest of the world. And, and, and if we go that way, this is the type of regional integration that is not good for, for, for peace. And so the exact type of regional integration that you have will matter a lot for whether it's peaceful or more, or more conflict-prone. You are listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. We will be right back after a short break. Welcome back to Trade for Peace. Thank you, Thierry. Now, Matthias, as Philippe mentioned, sanctions or, or, or trade, in essence, has been weaponized in, in so many ways. As the WTO goes through this sort of introspection, looking at ways to reform the organization to respond to today's challenges, how do you see, <laughs> looking at your model, this idea of trying to predict the probability of, of countries going to conflict as opposed to going to peace negotiations. What role do you think the WTO 2.0 could ideally play given the multiplicity of, of issues it has to tackle? Countries moving towards plurilateral negotiations and agreements, responding to global crises upon crises, it seemed to be coming back to back. WTO 2.0, looking at your model, what does it look like? Thanks for this very easy question, Axel. <laughs> it's quite challenging <laughs> to answer to that. But I'll open it to all three of you. <laughs> in a nutshell, I would say that we need more quantitative tools. So let me elaborate. The idea, I, I think... A takeaway message from our models and, you know, statistical and empirical studies is that trade, you know, and more broadly economic interests are not the only one factor, you know, explaining the dynamics of escalations or containment of armed conflicts, right? But it is one of the few triggers we have on which we can act directly, right? 
But this calls for a, a clear-sighted commercial diplomacy that is fully aware of the latent geopolitical tensions between countries. And so that's my personal opinion, but that's how, for me, the Russia, uh, the invasion of Ukraine, you know, means. It means that, uh, in terms of trade policy, it means that I think the, the purely mercantile view of globalization we have known since the you know, 1990s is over with the war in Ukraine. I think there is a new phase, and that goes into the direction of, of your question. There is a new phase of trade policy, and it's really clear that the future architecture of trade agreements will have to take fully into account the geopolitical risk. Of course, it's not easy, right? Because this new phase of trade policy and of WTO 2.0 will be a phase that really will have to aim at aligning trade policy with geopolitics, right? And this is very challenging because as what comes out of this conversation and out of our studies is that there is a very high risk of miscalibrating trade policies, right? Because of those complex reshuffling of trade flows, you know, because of trade creation and trade disruption. When you settle a new agreement, you will redistribute you know, all the economic interdependencies and they will affect in a world where geopolitical tensions in Europe, in the Pacific zones, in Southeast India, Southeast Asia, sorry, in a world where those tensions are high, you can really do harm if you don't calibrate well the architecture of your trade agreements and trade policies. And with this respect, our studies also, I think, show that you, you have to go beyond welfare gains. You have to think of trade policy not only as a way of promoting, in a, again, in a mercantile way, only the economic welfare, but you have to think of trade policy as a trade diplomacy, where you know trade negotiations offer a political forum for partners or for countries that are in a contest or dispute, uh, that are trying to settle some disputes, those trade negotiations at large offer a forum where those countries can discuss. The diplomats of those countries can meet, can exchange information. And exchanging information is key when you want to de-escalate a dispute. Huh? As Thierry was mentioning, asymmetric information is a main driver of the escalation of disputes into a fully-fledged war. Think of the Russian missile crisis in 1962, right? After this crisis, it became very clear that you know, the, the red telephone line has to be installed between Washington and Moscow. And with this respect, you can think of future trade policy as this red telephone line, right? But where diplomats will meet, and also beyond diplomats, it's also, you know, when you want to, you can exchange information by increasing sanctions or by decreasing sanctions or by decreasing uh, non-tariff barriers, tariff barriers, whatever. You, you, you send signals to the other countries and those signals can be interpreted in a multidimensional way. Not only a signal about trade policy, but also about the other policies that you want to, to conduct with the other countries. And so... Of course, the main challenge when you think of trade diplomacy arises when you want to trade with your 
enemy, right? How can you trade with your enemy? It's politically very costly. And with this, you know, you, you, what we show in our papers is that historically, for example, in the case of Europe, but also Mercosur, there has been a, a windows of opportunity where at some point the Latin disputes were low enough, such as the former enemies were able to settle trade agreements and this fostered peace after a while. But the, the, those windows of opportunities are very short. And if you miss it, then it becomes very hard to hear uh, a, a trade policy with who is supposed to be your enemy. And with this respect, I think that plurilateralism is a solution because in a pluri-multilateral system or uh, you know, negotiation, it's easier to talk to your enemy because you are not talking bilaterally to your enemy. You are talking to a, a, a wide set of countries, of regional neighbors, including your potential enemies. Politically, it's easier to do that. It's easier, it's less costly to talk to your enemy within a multilateral, plurilateral forum than in a bilateral exchange. So I think that's the future to some extent of the WTO system is to align trade policy with geopolitics, offering and pushing the trade diplomacy agenda and offering a forum of discussion for potential enemies to settle their disputes. So in addition to uh, what uh, just said Matthias, I would add two points. One is I would not want to come out of this conversation where we, the listeners would think that we, we, we think only b- badly of multilateral trade openness. That's not our point. In fact, we cannot prove it, but in fact, the logic of our argument is the multilateral trade openness, which WTO has, has, has fostered, has potentially generated peace at the global, at the multilateral level. That's the logic, you know. We haven't had any World War III. You know, trade is not the only reason. But in the logic of our argument, it's true that multilateral trade certainly has fostered peace in that direction. It may have generated more local bilateral conflicts, but at the global level, globalization has certainly generated more peace. So from that point of view, WTO has been useful too. Now, the second point is, and it's related to what Matthias uh, was saying, I think that, you know, the most useful part of the issue of trade disputes, it's in danger, it's in crisis even, but I think that it is super important because clearly, it's better to have a conflict at the WTO and to try to find a resolution at the WTO. And we know it can be super uh, <laughs> a bit violent and intense, but it's better to have it at the WTO than in the uh, trenches, huh, clearly, and to have something that would escalate into uh, a military conflict. And the last point is, in a sense, what we've seen in the past 20 or 30 years is that regional trade agreements and multilateral trade agreements, yes, clearly regional trade agreements have become much more important and for plenty of reasons, both economic and political, and in some sense, our interpretation is is obviously uh, political, but the two can work together. And that's where clearly WTO has has moved quite along in that direction of indeed accompanying uh, regional trade agreements that can be good both for economics, but also for political reasons. One thing that strikes me is that if we want to 
have, like Matthias was saying, some new mission of the WTO to sort of uh, put a geopolitical agenda in coordination with trade liberalization, which was the, the usual mandate of WTO. And if WTO yeah. also has another global public good at mind, for instance, with you know climate policy, which is another yeah. global public good that we might want to be... Uh, can WTO 2.0 function the way it used to... I mean, it is functioning with unanimity rules. I was thinking more institutionally here. Is that... Mm. What do you think, Matthias? If, if we want to have geopolitical agenda within WTO and coordinating trade policy with that thing, it's going to be much more conflictual at the table, okay? Which is good because people discuss. But in a sense, if you never get anything done, that's an issue. And so you, the unanimity rule, economists might view it as everybody was gaining for more trade. That's the principle of a unanimity rule, right? People will disagree on some details, but fundamentally, everybody agrees that free trade worldwide is a good thing. And the details matter, but fundamentally, everybody has a vote because everybody agrees that it's a good thing. Otherwise, you don't enter WTO. Geopolitical interests, it's quite different. Everybody agrees that the world war is bad, but bilateral wars, some people disagree that it's not good. So, so then... I, I, I'm just wondering whether W2.0 doesn't mean also another decision process. Yeah, that, that's very clear. I, I agree with you, Thierry. I think to, to some extent, uh, what we can, an interpretation of our results is that you, you have to accept that you, as soon as you want to, you know, factor in the geopolitical risk, political agenda, and uh, the trade policy agenda, you need to accept that you face trade-offs, right? If you open, if you design in a certain way your trade architecture, you, you have to accept that as a country, you will potentially pacify with some countries, with some partners, but you will increase the risk with other parts. I think that to some extent, that's one virtue of this, the type of quantitative analysis that we conduct is that we can use the quantitative tools to make those trade-offs very clear when you, you design your trade policy. And with this respect, so let me publicize a bit more of framework. What we have done in the past years is also building quantitative tools, you know, really to, to, to answer to the type of question we are discussing now, which, are, which is what if in the South, you know, in Eastern Africa, the architecture of trade agreements would be would change, right? A monetary union would be uh, fully enforced. And we, we, we have tools where we can show that the effect, for example, of a monetary union in Eastern Africa on trade flows, but also on conflict risk between Eastern Africa countries such as Tanzania, Ethiopia, Kenya, etc., etc. So that was part of our goal. I mean, in, when we engaged into this overall endeavor, it was to provide the community with quantitative tools where you can really understand quantitatively the trade-off between the, the trade interest, economic interest, and the geopolitical risk. And with the idea of helping those international agencies, you know, to design the architecture of trade. Thank you, Matthias. And thanks for that point, Thierry. I wanted us to sort of wrap up with uh, just a quick look at LDCs. Conflicts in LDCs are due to heavy dependency on in imports. Uh, I think 
the global challenges of COVID, of climate change, of conflict elsewhere have exposed the vulnerability of a lot of LDCs, particularly fragile and conflict-affected countries. And it's leading and is leading to internal disputes that you've seen across Africa, several coup attempts and, and coups that are taking place, especially those heavily commodity-dependent countries. What would you say in terms of looking at your model, uh, looking internally? I know your, your model sort of looks externally across the borders, but uh, a lot of countries in that category, LDCs, a lot of the conflicts actually internally. And it's internal, but with external influencers, uh, because it's due to supply chain disruption, it's due to other political geopolitical influences on these economies. How would you look at such a model. I was quite happy to see the MC12 final agreement, very people-focused and people-centered, trying to tackle some of the issues of LDC and development and the need for building the capacity to trade better, tackling issues of fisheries. But as economists, what do you say to the domestic conflicts that are influenced by multilateral trade? A lot of LDCs make an argument that globalization was good for the the big economies that were that had better capacity to take advantage of market access. And so they were able to export their products. But their LDCs are smaller countries, smaller economies with limited capacity have not been able to benefit at the same level. What do you say to that? Well, I think we, we, we have a, a paper, a follow-up paper on civil wars and, and trade, which in some sense in, is in, indeed very much motivated by, by what happened in the LDCs. And indeed, we were finding also an ambiguous effect of trade on this type of uh, civil conflicts. If civil conflicts do destroy trade with the rest of the world, and they do actually, they do destroy trade with the rest of the world, then, then having more trade reduces uh, the potential uh, of a civil war. So from that point of view, uh, trade w- was good. But the, the other effect, which is more ambiguous, is that you're trading with other countries. That means that you n- maybe if you think of civil wars between two regions inside the country, then that means that it's like an insurance mechanism. You don't need to trade with the North if you're a, a, a region in the south of the country if you can trade with, with other countries. So it was a bit ambiguous also. You see, nothing is simple in this uh, story of trade and war. And so that's also true for uh, civil wars. Let me just qualify what you uh, said. Very concretely, what we found is that, you know, the trade openness, international, uh, openness to international trade. Well, we, are, we are not talking about interregional within country trade open, trade facilitation yes. within, I don't know, uh, uh, mm. Eastern Congo regions, huh, right? It's really inter- uh, international trade openness. So what we found is that trade openness reduces the probability, the risk of a very high intensity civil conflict. Okay, mm. so trade openness tends to reduce intensity, so the risk of high in- intensity risk conflict, but increases the risk of uh, the frequency of low-scale latent civil conflicts. So far, we don't have a a fully quantitative uh, framework to tackle this question of international trade openness and uh, civil conflicts. Actually, it took us 10 years to come up with such a framework, and and now (laughs) we we will provide it we are in the process of writing a paper where we can really answer to this question using a fully-fledged statistical economic model. 
maybe to continue a bit on what Matthias was saying. So with the data we had at the time and with the data sort of easily available, what can be done is an analysis of, of civil conflict that is quite macro in the sense that we look at every country and we look whether yes or no, this given year, there's been a civil conflict in that country for a long time period. And therefore, what we can do is limited. And what we can do is essentially to look at the international openness. And the same logic from our initial paper is that the more open you are to the rest of the world, the less dependent the different regions are between themselves, which makes those latent conflict that, that Matthias was talking about more likely. And that nuance that Matthias was saying, that depends on the initial probability of having a conflict, of having you know, conflictuality issues. And that's for this high intensity versus low intensity conflict. Now, in order to make progress on thing, I think Matthias was alluding to better data. I mean, he's been working on, on African data for a long, long time, which is really geocoded and much more finer grain. Yeah, you can see it <laughs> behind him, right? It's yes. like incredibly high level data about where, where violent events happen. There's more and more data about trade or economic activity that is also at the spatial level, but will never be, especially not in Africa, at, at the same level. So we have to work on reconciling those two things to get more fine-grained analysis and a little bit less brutal country-level analysis, which is which is always a little bit of a shortcut. Even though sometimes it's, it's it, talking about present case, it might not be also by random chance that if you look at the overall openness of Russia, overall openness versus trade with itself, sort of, so that how how much of the imports of Russia, consumption of Russia comes from itself, and how much comes from the rest of the world? The last twenty years has seen a steady decline in the international openness of of Russia. Well, Russia is cutting itself from the rest of the world, and that would tend to you know reduce the internal conflicts and augment the external conflicts that uh, under that logic. It still tells us something. We need to make really progress. We need more, more fine grain. Now we've come to the end of our podcast. I would like us to, to conclude with a few takeaways for our audience. And I would like to start with you, Matthias, and then to you, Philippe, and Thierry. Oh, so I think the, the takeaway is we need more quantitative analysis. And we, we really need, in order to understand how the complexity of trade policy and trade flows act with the complexity of geopolitics. And so with this respect, I mean, Thierry, Philippe, me, and you know, the community of, of quantitative trade economists and quantitative political scientists and quantitative poli yeah, political economists, I mean, we, we, we are very keen to, to talk more to you uh, and to other international agencies, you know, and to provide those agencies with the tools that we have developed so far and that the community is now developing even more to inform decision regarding trade policy under the shadow of war, if you want. Okay. Yeah. So if you want to connect trade policy under the shadow of war, you need more quantitative tools. We are here for that. Thank you, Matthias. And to you, Philippe. Maybe an historical dimension in, in Europe. It was obvious that trade integration was, was, was due to the fact that we had big wars and we wanted to never that again. We tend to forget, we've tended to a bit forget this impact of, of trade. 
And here I would come back to something that was, I think that was said by, uh, by Matthias, is that in, indeed, I think we need to think about trade policy, trade policy integration, not only in pure economic terms, but also in terms in political, in strategic terms. You mentioned the issue of climate change. Clearly, we cannot avoid trade policy to be also part of you know, diplomatic policy and, and politics in a general sense. And we should not avoid it. We should accept it for the, the, the good. And clearly, WTO should be part of this. This is not easy because the members do not agree on, 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 several, on many dimensions. But I think that the peace dimension of trade is an important one and, and should be part of the trade negotiations. And with whom you sign trade agreements, it, it's important. And to you, Thierry? Maybe following up uh, uh, on what both Matthias and Philippe say. So, so uh, regarding quantitative models and related to what Philippe said about we need to take into account the geopolitics directly into trade policy. So, so one of the questions is, will we be able to design simple indicators inspired by quantitative models that are, you know, that they're, they're for academia, they're for, for us to play with. And that's, we make progress on that, but we need inspired by this, maybe can we think about simple theory grounded, quantitatively built predictions to be implemented in order to have some predictive powers of where things get dangerous in the sense that we think that trade and specialization is good for consumer good for consumer welfare, etc. etc. At which point and can we build an indicator that tells us that too much specialization in sense is always good for welfare, but there might be a trade-off in terms of dependence that actually will lead at some point to an increased level of conflict that may be dangerous. So if the WTO was able to sort of use academic research, develop those tools that will be understandable by governments, usable by governments and by their own tools, that, that I think we there would be a big, a big progress in that there would be some indicators and tools that countries could themselves master, could they self use as, okay, there's a there's sort of a, a red light in the relationship with that country, and we should be careful with the way we're doing trade policy. I think that would be a big, a big, an interesting challenge. Absolutely. And I, I hope decision makers and the members are listening to this episode. I think it was quite useful. I want to thank you for your groundbreaking work. We hope we'll continue this conversation. I think the Data is very important to informing the reform process the WTO is, is undergoing. That was Matthias Tunick, Philip Martin, and Thierry Mayer, authors of Make Trade Not Work. Philippe, Thierry, and Matthias, thank you for joining us today on Trade for Peace and sharing with us your seminal work on trade and conflict and its relevance in today's context. Thank you. Thank you, Axel. Thank you, Axel. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to our special economic focus episode, Make Trade, Not War. Don't forget to follow us on our social media channels. We are present on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn as Trade for Peace. And I'm your host, Axel Addy. You have been listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. You can be a part of the conversation by sharing your stories and your suggestions with us at tradeforpeace at wto.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at Trade for Peace. 
Be sure to tune in every other week for new episodes. Thank you for listening to Trade for Peace.